This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Naomi Barron talks about reading in the digital age. Then PW Reviews editor Annie Carino introduces 2014's best audiobooks. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen Bookscan. What's happening on the nonfiction side, Mark? So we have quite a few debuts here. Number four, we have Scary Close, Dropping the Act and Finding True Intimacy by Donald Miller. He's the author of Blue Like Jazz. But here he turns uh, to relationships. And in a conversational tone, he discloses thoughts about intimacy and how to find it. Um, and by doing so, kind of taking off the mass of our true selves. Uh, we say the short chapters tackle topics that range from personal memories and experiences to practical advice about factors that affect people as they develop relationships. Now, are these just romantic relationships or the rom- relationships of any kind? It seems to be that they're relationships of, of any kind. Um, so it's just being a little more intimate and finding your true self in that. Well, that sounds like a thing that a lot of New Yorkers are going to struggle with. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're pretty good at keeping people at <laughs> right, arm's length. Right, right. <laughs> uh, number seven, the 100-year marathon, China's secret strategy to replace America as the global superpower. This is by Michael Pillsbury. We don't have a review of this book, but on the book jacket says, one of the U.S. government's leading China experts reveals the hidden strategy fueling the country's rise and how Americans have been seduced into helping China overtake us as the world's leading superpower. So that's at number seven. And going a little bit further, a little bit more on culture, counterculture, a compassionate call to counterculture in a world of poverty, same-sex marriage, racism, sex, slavery, immigration, abortion, persecution, orphans, and pornography. Author David Platt seems to be tackling a lot on this. I was going to say thirteen, that, one of the longest subtitles I've read. <laughs> that's not a collection of terms you usually hear all in one place. It sounds like a blend of right-wing and left-wing hot button issues. This is it. Uh, and this is, you know, we're, we're talking about traditional marriage versus gay marriage, pro-life versus pro-choice, personal freedom versus government protection. So he's he's attacking, or he, I mean, he's discussing a lot of these different facets here. So that's at number 13. Number 14, we have a baseball book, The Matheny Manifesto, a young manager's old school views on success in sports and life. This is by Mike Matheny, who's just 41 years old. He had a successful career in the major league catcher. So um, uh, when he succeeded Tony La Russa as the uh, manager of the St. Louis Cardinals in 2012. And here he takes uh, his views on baseball and sports and uh, tries to, which he says, old school views and uh, applying them to life. So it sounds like another successful way of extending a sports career beyond age 40, which doesn't tend to happen so much. Yeah, and I think a lot of these uh, coaches and managers go on to give talks, they're hired to give talks about, you know, kind of 
boosting morale, uh, self and team morale. So right, this, the sports metaphor is uh, is is very prevalent in business, in business writing yeah. and um, and I suppose elsewhere as well. You know, no I in team and that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, next, we have Life, Love, Beauty uh, by Keegan Allen. Uh, she's currently known uh, to fans of uh, the family uh, hit TV series, Pretty Little Liars. Mm. And um, he has uh, appeared in numerous independent films, made his New York stage debut in Small Engine Repair. And uh, this is a memoir of his, his life. And that's at number 17. Finally, at 18, we have yet another kind of, maybe not self-help book, but maybe a guidebook. The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money by Ron Lieber. And uh, he's a New York Times columnist and the author of Taking Time Off. So he turns his attention to, uh, to kids and to raising them. I think I've seen a lot of books about money management for kids and how to raise kids who are good with money. That seems to be a a big theme. Do you think a lot of adults are feeling like they weren't raised so much to think or talk about money? Because there are all these money taboos. Yeah, it could also be a reaction to the whole helicopter parenting where where Mm. rather than, than feeling that we're, you know, that parents are constantly trying to manage and micromanage the kids' lives. People are realizing that it takes so much energy to do it. <laughs> yes, Why indeed. not let them do what, in some cases, what uh, a different generation did is uh, let them work it out. Right. And I think this this probably brings in some of that philosophy into it as well. Interesting. And what about fiction? Well, on the fiction list, um, we have new number four, number five, and number six. So um, clearly wow. a lot of stuff kind of shaking up after yeah. the doldrums of January. We're starting to see more of the big early spring books. Mm-hmm. You know, for those of you suffering under multiple feet of snow um, in the publishing world, this is considered spring, uh, <laughs> believe it or not. So uh, number four, we have The Nightingale. Mm-hmm. Um, this is by Kristen Hanna. And uh, this is a, a novel. Uh, we say that the the best-selling author hits her stride in this page-turning tale about two sisters during World War II. Um, they're in France while it's being occupied by the Germans. One is in Paris and the other is in the countryside. So you get this real sort of city view, country mm-hmm. view, and the ways that the occupation played out in those two very different places. We say the author ably depicts war's horrors through the eyes of these two women whose strength of character shines through, no matter their differences. And they announced a first printing of 350,000 copies, uh, which is pretty impressive. And the first week it sold 18,000 of them. So Great. hopefully it'll be on track to burn through the rest of that very significant yeah. print run. Uh, number five is Trigger Warning by Neil Gaiman. This is a new collection of short fiction. There's been quite a lot of controversy about this title. Um, some people saying that it's uh, insensitive or a mockery of people who want trigger warnings on uh, material that may cause real distress by triggering memories of traumatic events. So, for example, you might say, uh, you know, just to to warn you, there is a trigger warning on this because it contains rape or violence or other depictions of things that might oh. um, be very upsetting. And Gaiman's introduction says um, he just assumed it was a matter of time.
time till someone put a trigger warning on one of his books, and so he thought he would do it himself. And uh, the the subtitle or the reading line is short fictions and disturbances. Um, so he intends the title as a way of saying very generally, there's lots of disturbing stuff in here. Mm-hmm. Um, your trigger warnings are usually really specific. You want to know what's likely to be triggered. So right. you might say trigger warning spiders, um, and then people who are fine with spiders can read it, and people who are really bothered by spiders can Notice avoid it. Um, here, he's just like, the whole thing, the whole thing could be triggery, could be upsetting, read at your own risk. Um, and many people are, because that's at number five on yeah. our uh, hardcover fiction list with about 12,000 copies sold. Down at number six is Crash and Burn by Lisa Gardner. Um, this is a thriller, a standalone, which is always nice to see in this era of many, many, many lengthy, lengthy, lengthy thriller series. Right, right. Um, she's won a thriller award, and uh, this is linked to another one of her books. Uh, it stars the same central uh, couple, Wyatt Foster and Tessa Leone, who are seen in Touch and Go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it works very well on its own. Um, we say that uh, a subploster involving Foster and Leone's personal relationship is a welcome distraction from the horrors involved in uh, the mm-hmm. thriller side. Um, so that's at number six. And finally, down at number eight is Funny Girl by Nick Hornby. We give this a starred review. Um, it's set in Blackpool in the 1960s and uh, stars a woman who is a big fish in a small pond. She really wants to make it big, um, moves to London, changes her name and gets a big break. Uh, and we say that Hornby wonderfully captures the voice and rhythms of broadcast television of the time and seems to delight in endless inversions of art, imitating life, imitating art. It's a delightful collection of characters who care as much as they harm, each struggling to determine who they want to be. Oh, fantastic. So that and sounds yeah, like Nick a winner. Hornby's a fav- yeah, favorite of mine as well. Uh, well, that's, uh, that's one you might want to consider picking yeah. up then. And I'm sorry, I said that was at number eight. It's actually at number 10. Okay, great. Funny Girl. Um, and sold about 4,000 copies. Respectable great. first outing. So that's what we've got on the list. Uh, you know, a few other newer things much further down, but those are the those are the big ones out there right now. Great. So that's uh, that'll be worth keeping an eye on. Um, it'll be... I'll be interested to see uh, whether February continues to be full of moving and shaking or whether we get another lull before things really pick up in March. Great. Well, Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Naomi Barron tells us about words on screens. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Brandon Sanderson, author of the Reckoner series, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Naomi Barron on the line. Her new book is Words on Screen. Hi, Naomi. I'm so glad you could join us. Hello. It's delightful to be here. So tell us about your book, Words on Screen. Is this, is this a little bit of a follow-up to your, to your previous book? Uh, yes and no. Uh, my previous book, Always On Language in an Online and Mobile World, really focused on the kind of language that we use when we're doing, whether it's messaging or email or texting or blogs. This book stands back and says, what do we do when we read? What do we do when we read traditionally in some kind of printed um, 
uh, uh, platform, or before that, handwritten, and some of us still write by hand, as opposed to what are the new digital technologies, whether they're computers or uh, e-readers or uh, um, tablets or now mobile phones increasingly, what happens when we read on those? Are we changing the nature of what it means to read? So that's a linguistic question, but it's a much broader kind of question about how do we become literate people? So I'm just going to jump right in. I mean, it seems, and we've been hearing that younger people read, uh, you know, seemingly everything online and not necessarily in print nowadays. Is that really the case? No. <laughs> and what's fascinating is you read the popular press, and it basically implies because younger people, whether we're talking about teenagers or young adults, uh, are increasingly using their digital devices. They are running out of power on their mobile phones by 10 o'clock in the morning. We're assuming that they really want to spend all of their reading time on digital devices. However, if you bother to ask them, which is what I did with university-age students <laughs> in four different countries, which is what a number of other organizations, such as Scholastic, is doing with younger kids, you, you find things that surprise you, namely there's a value given to the printed-on-a-page word that many of us didn't suspect was there. So how did you conduct this research? I began uh, using my own students, mm -hmm. and then I spread to other students on my campus at American University here in Washington, D.C., and then I uh, got the kind help of a number of colleagues in different parts of the world. I was talking about some of my research with American students at a conference, and a colleague from Germany said, how about we replicate the student, the, the study there? And I said, sure, that would be wonderful. So we translated the survey into German, the survey that I had done most recently in spring 2013 here in the United States, in Washington in particular. Then I had a colleague visiting from Tokyo who said, we could do this in Japan. I said, yes, we could. <laughs> so we put it in the survey into Japanese. I spoke with another colleague uh, when I was at a conference in Ljubljana, and um, that colleague happened to be from Slovakia. And he said, how about we do this in my hometown? And I said, sure. So I now have data from four different countries, in part because there are lots of people around the world who are interested in the same kinds of questions. The data that I'm finding from the United States are remarkably similar to the results I'm finding from other parts of the world. And it's not just other parts of the world, but people using different alphabets and reading in Japanese is entirely different from reading in English. Uh, it, it, it is, although many of these students also read English. We did do the survey in Japanese. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, you have to look at some cultural issues to be able to interpret the kinds of findings that you get. So, for example, in Japan, the mobile phone, in Japanese it's called a keitai, uh, has been in very active use for far longer than it has in, uh, in the United States in particular, in part because the technology allowed you to use the Internet both to send the equivalent of what we call now text messaging, much of the rest of the world calls SMS, or short message service, but it was done via the Internet, which is a different system mm -hmm. than is used in the States or is used in, in Europe or uh, in, in Africa or the Middle East, for example. And that Internet connection lets you do lots of other things on your phone. So you were doing the equivalent of um, finding maps uh, 15 years earlier in Japan on your phone than we were here in the States. 
what was interesting to me in looking at the Japanese data is that the things that people were doing on their mobile phones were somewhat different than in the other parts of the world, in part because that phone has become such an integral part of their existence, even more so than in other countries. So, for example, the kinds of reading that they tended to do uh, was significantly more on the phone, but for pleasure. And what did you read for pleasure? Well, we know this from other kinds of statistics. They write, read manga comics, right? Oh, so that's right. a version of seeing and reading. But that is what is done electronically, overwhelmingly, for reading in Japan. That's not the case when you ask about reading, say, for pleasure in other countries. And what have you found in, in the, here in the U.S.? What is the difference between what uh, people read for pleasure uh, and, and online, ver, you know, print okay. versus digital? Yeah, well, I didn't specifically ask... Uh, did you read Fifty Shades of Grey when you talked about reading for pleasure? I just compared reading for schoolwork rather than reading for pleasure, and I compared those uh, those two questions across all of the countries. What fascinated me was how much people, I won't say preferred hard copy rather than reading um, on a screen, but you'd ask such questions as what percent of your reading do you do? and very heavily on the two different media. And very heavily, the percentage was highest in all of the countries for reading both for schoolwork and for pleasure in reading in hard copy. But to me, the really interesting questions were not where do you do your reading, because in the United States, for example, we assign as faculty members lots of things that are only available digitally. Mm. So if the students say, I do a fair amount reading digitally, it's because we ask them to do it, not because that was a choice. If you ask them about choice, so one of the questions I asked was a choice question. If the cost were identical, if the cost were identical, would you prefer to do your reading for school in print or on a screen? And what the American students said was 89% of them would prefer to read in print, in hard copy, wow. if the costs were the same. Asking about pleasure. Mm -hmm. 81% of the American students said they'd prefer to read in print. Who knew? Because that's not necessarily what they're doing. Why are they not doing it? You ask over and over and over again, you get exactly the same answer. Because generally speaking, not entirely, but generally speaking, digital versions are less expensive. Mm -hmm. I asked my students last spring, tell me about your reading habits. They knew it was coming. They had read a a version of my book before it, was, before it came out. And they said, I'd love to buy print. Can't afford it, Governor. All I can afford is the electronic version. And by the way, I'm renting it rather than even buying it because it's cheaper still. It's a money issue. Mm -hmm. uh, another very telling question to me had to do with concentration. I asked, what is the medium where it's easier for you, easiest for you to concentrate when you read? So I gave them the choice of hard copy or a desktop, a laptop, a, a tablet, an e-reader, your mobile phone. 92% of the Americans said it's easiest to concentrate when reading in hard copy. To just give you some comparative figures from other countries, 92% of the Japanese said this. Get ready, 90. 8% of the Germans said this, 93% of the Slovaks. They're telling us something if we'd even bothered to ask and listen. 
Why is it harder to concentrate? Well, because most of the devices that are digital have an Internet connection. The moment you have an Internet connection, or if you've downloaded games onto your device, that will do as well, you can get distracted. I ask them, how often do you multitask when you're reading on a digital screen versus reading in hard copy? Across the board, they're two to three times as likely to multitask when they're reading on a digital screen because the things are there that are enticing them away from what they're reading. Yeah, I've found when I do writing on my computer, I'm still one who writes, often writes a first draft of something longhand or up until recently. Yeah. Um, uh, but when I write on the computer, if I go to the library or if I'm doing something else, I turn off my uh, Wi-Fi <laughs> because <laughs> even even if I say, well, I'm just not going to check it, it's just so easy because I get alerts, I, I, I do that. So. There you is know a- about Freedom Software. Yeah, freedom right. freedom is wonderful, but uh, it still requires some willpower. There is yeah, a, to turn a, it on. Right. <laughs> there, there was a tweet that came across my dash today from uh, uh, user Destructo9000. Uh, it says, working on a laptop that's connected to the internet is like trying to write on a typewriter that's been welded to a circus. <laughs> That's beautifully said. And so, so clearly, this is a, a fairly universal experience. Last I checked, there were about fifteen hundred retweets on that. So, <laughs> yeah, struck, struck a chord. So, um, shifting to neurology a bit, what effects have uh, has have there been on our brains from this economically driven shift toward reading online? Many of us wish there were more effects on our brain in the sense of actually changing the wiring. Mm -hmm. We know now, which we didn't know 100 years ago, the brain is plastic, by which we mean it can change even in adulthood. And a lot of people would love to believe that if you just practice multitasking enough, we're going to get better at doing it. There are some people who are better at multitasking than others. Uh, The number is probably closer to... 5% who can actually do it. They're sometimes called super taskers. Uh, I'm fond of saying you hope your pilot on a plane is good at multitasking because there's so many things you have to handle. But all of the things as a pilot that you handle are coordinated. They all go to the same cognitive end, namely getting that plane safely up, across, and down. Whereas the multitasking that we do when we talk about multitasking while writing something on a computer, for example, takes us to different kinds of cognitive realms. We have to focus our mind on something else. The driving data on how dangerous it is to text or even to talk hands-free and drive are excruciatingly clear. Overwhelmingly, we are not capable of doing it. You can look at reaction times when you put people into simulators. You can look at uh, whether you can follow a straight line. You can look at peripheral vision. And all of the data say exactly the same thing that we've known from traditional psychological multitasking tests long before computers even came along. Overwhelmingly, people can't look to two different tasks at the same time. Why? Because at some point neurologically in our brains, the information has to go through the same channel, and you have to get in line. It's like being on a one-lane bridge. You have to wait your turn, and we cannot focus on two different sorts of things at the same time, or at least the overwhelming majority of us cannot do it. The brain evolves as, as human beings evolve, but not that fast. 
So haven't new technologies always given rise to similar complaints about the changes in reading, the death of reading? Oh, of and um, And also, again, going back to the economics, I've been reading mm-hmm. a lot recently about the literacy boom in the Victorian era. Uh, mm-hmm. For for example, which was also driven by economics, but in the opposite direction, the sudden availability of cheap printed matter. Uh, right. So so how how do those things? Uh, how much of that is just kind of the the perpetual kids these days get off my lawn, and um, and <laughs> and how much of it is a real shift in the way we're doing things? I would have loved to believe that I was just an old fogey, but then I looked at my data. And then I look at the data that are coming out of a number of different organizations. I mentioned Scholastic, the book industry study group does the same thing of trying to see how much are young kids and teenagers reading, uh, wanting to read in print versus wanting to read on digital screens. And I was amazed to see how much interest there was, how much commitment, how much love there was of things that are tactile, of things that smell who would have thought that 20-year-olds who were attached to their digital devices would say the thing they like most about reading in print is the smell of a book? Oh, wow. Uh, for, for the Slovakian data, 10% of all the responses talked about smell. Well, maybe in the former Czechoslovakia, the books have a better smell. But I promise you, it went for Germany, it even went for Japan. You listen to what the... Um, the Japanese said, uh, I had in my surveys, I had places for open-ended questions. Uh, you know, tell me what you think about this or that. And some of the Japanese students said, reading in hard copy is real reading. Well, hmm. what did they mean by that? They meant it's a different kind of experience than reading on a digital screen. What happens when you read on a digital screen? You tend to read more quickly. Why do you, then when you read in print? Why do you tend to do that? Because when we think about what we do with screens, we tend to skim, we tend to scan, we tend to use Control-F or, or find function to find just what we're looking at. We don't sit and read whole web pages. We don't hit sit and read whole websites. We jump from place to place. So if you take that mindset that we've developed for using these kinds of digital devices and then say, okay, it's time to read War and Peace. Our mind doesn't feel that's what we're supposed to be doing on this device. I had one student report to me, I was doing a guest lecture in a class on digital citizenship, and I had one student report to me that he loved to read and he loved to read in hard copy, but he was having a problem because these days, I mean, he's what, all of 1920. These days, when he's reading a book, he kept waiting for something to happen. And we're not talking about the action in fiction. Mm. He kept waiting for a pop-up. He kept waiting for a ding to say that he had a text, because that's his expectation of what he does when he reads now. He said, I hate it, but it's true. So he kept waiting to be interrupted. Exactly. Mm. But he didn't want to be interrupted. He just thought it was going to happen. It's like waiting for a phone call. That sounds, that, sounds, come. that sounds almost like a like a a, a response conditioned by by trauma <laughs> that you know after after you've been around explosions you keep waiting for the next explosion just Absolutely. on a much smaller scale. Absolutely. So that is the mindset. To, so to go back to the question, is this just a former generation complaining about those kids today? No, it's the kids themselves who are complaining, who are saying, "I don't like what's happening to me." Interestingly. 
when you teach on a college campus, as I do, or you look at what's happening K through 12, at least in the United States, you see enormous pressures to move towards digital uh, reading. And the, did, and, and the pressures are largely coming by very well-meaning educators who think two things. First, I'm going to save the students or the school board or the district money because I can get a better deal on digital books than I can on hard copy. And the second thing that these well-meaning educators are saying is, this is where our students live, and we want them to feel comfortable. This is the new world. We're not you know, the old-fashioned generation. We're going to move forward with what our students want and need. And that's an assumption we're making. What troubles me about the assumption is we have almost no data on what kind of reading people are doing, and almost no data on what the readers themselves, K through graduate school, would prefer. And that, to me, is a travesty. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Naomi Barron, the author of Words on Screen, who's telling us some fascinating things about adult expectations and the realities among students uh, with regard to preference for print or digital work. So um, how long have you been conducting this research? You, you said that uh, your, your studies were going up at least through 2013, so this is very recent. Yeah, the, the most recent set of data I have are from 2013 and 14, because it takes a while to gather data from a number of countries. However, I began doing this research around 2009, 2010, when I started to get curious about what was happening on campuses. And I was watching as well how little reading my students were doing. Because I knew something about digital technologies, I asked, is there a connection? I really got going when I started seeing signs planted all over my campus from our local bookstore, to remain nameless, <laughs> that said, rent your textbook, save some money. Mm-hmm. At that point, I was mainly concerned about students renting hard copies, because that's largely what was happening initially. Why was I concerned? Because you rent a book and then it's gone. You know that if you rent a book and you put lots of highlights in, and you put lots of marginalia in, you will probably be charged for that whole book. It's the same thing that happens if you buy a book, and then a textbook sellback at the end of the semester are trying to get some money back. You will get less money if you have marked it up a lot. Therefore, what do students do when they're renting? They don't mark books up. So the book isn't yours. It's not part of what you have learned. It's not part of who you are. When you talk with students in Germany, and I'll take that as an example where I, I have some colleagues who have, have uh, corroborated uh, my own experiences, they'll tell you, I finish a book and then I want to put it on the shelf. I don't want to know that's mine. Not in the possessive sense of I own this, but that's a piece of who I have become. That's part of the life I have lived. I can go back to that book later 
And for anyone who thinks about rereading or who writes about rereading books, when I go back to it subsequently and I read passages again and I look at the marginalia that I put in, I see how I have changed as a person since I first read that book. If you are renting your books, even renting hard copy, or if you're renting a digital copy, you don't have that experience. I did some uh, early surveys around 2011, I think 2011 and 2012, about how often students, again on my campus here at American University, how often they reread and how often they annotated. Not surprisingly, when they were reading in hard copy, they were more likely to reread, they were more likely to annotate. When they were reading digitally, they were less likely to do so. And when they were renting, they were much less likely to do so. I knew that because they wanted as much money back as possible at the end of the semester. So I got into this enterprise by seeing the nature of reading change as we in higher education were trying to be helpful to students by saving the money rather than asking, what does it mean to learn? You're paying how many thousands, how many tens of thousands of dollars for tuition and keeping a textbook is going to be too expensive? I know textbooks, are, particularly for introductory courses, are incredibly expensive. That's another problem. We have to work on it. There are some solutions. We could talk about them. But to just assume saving money is the name of the game is the wrong way to go. You say in your book that all this, you know, the digital reading, um, is res is resulting in a new paradigm of literacy, and I'm going to quote, in which length and complex complexity and annotation and memory and rereading and especially concentrating are proving more challenging. Tell us about this, and what are we gaining in exchange for these losses? What we're gaining in exchange is really good abilities to search. So uh, there is a, a computer scientist who I think works at Google who talks about what he calls informacy, which is by which he means not literacy in the traditional sense, but rather knowing how to find things. And is that a useful skill? Of course it is. Am I a better typist now than I used to be because I spend so much time at a keyboard? Of course I am. But what is the trade-off? So let's think about what we know about search ability and the skills we gather. There is a big move in lower education as well as higher education of saying what's important in learning is knowing where to find things, mm -hmm. not what you know in your head at any given moment. Because you can always find it, and knowledge changes. To which I respond, when the power's out, what do you know? Yeah. There are some studies done by a psychologist named uh, Betsy Sparrow that came out in Scientific Amer Science, I think it was, or Scientific American. Um, that were some interesting studies looking at how people did searches for particular pieces of information and then asking, what do you remember either of the information or of the search process? What her subjects remembered was how to go burrow down in, a, in a, an online search to find something rather than remembering the thing itself. So to the extent that not just screens are here and we search on screens as well as sometimes read, but pedagogies are shifting to encourage us to know how to search well rather than to know how to know something when there's no power, when there are no devices, that's a change. And that's a change that I think has serious consequences. 
Are there some positive consequences of doing things digitally? Sure. So let me give a simple example. And my son, my 28-year-old son will forgive me. When he was learning how to drive, I realized he had reaction time that was terrific. Where the heck did he get it? From hundreds of hours of playing flight simulator. Okay, it's true. If you, if you ask the people in the armed services who fly planes, who are the best pilots? They're the ones who did lots of video games. So there are positive spin-offs. I grant you. The question is, what are we losing? And when I say what are we losing, I'm more concerned with how we're changing our mindset of what's worth knowing, what's worth teaching, what's worth slowing down for. One of my students, on the, the American students on the survey, when asked, what is the thing you like least about reading in hard copy, answered the following. It takes more time to read in hard copy, and I don't like that. Hmm. Excuse me, it takes more time because, in part, she's used to reading more slowly in hard copy because way back when somebody trained her, that's what you do. She doesn't feel anyone's controlling her when she's reading on a screen, so she can zip along. Hmm. I, you know, I, I just um, encountered a website that has, claims to have developed a way of helping you read even more quickly by making the, the text a slightly different color at one end and the other end of the sentence so that you're following a visual color gradient to the end <laughs> of the line. And you know, they'll do a little test. Now you read 20% faster. I'm like, but why? <laughs> and, and why does one want to? Right. You know, there, what, there's, a lot the of discussion of, <laughs> there's a lot of discussion of speed reading. And, and there, people have been doing speed reading for years. Some people are probably really good at it. Um, other people are may think they're good at it, but may not be. We delude ourselves, like deluding ourselves into thinking we are good multitaskers. I'll just say parenthetically, there's some wonderful experiments done by Clifford Ness and his students at Stanford uh, on multitasking. And he first asked, or especially a graduate student who was, who was uh, the, the lead author on the study, uh, asked the students, so are you a good multitasker? And some of them said, yeah, sure, I can multitask. And some said, no, I, I have to concentrate on one thing at a time. So they ran the multitasking studies. Who did the worst? The students who said they were good multitaskers. So we often don't know how much we're learning from what we think we're good at doing. So it takes the speed reading issue. Uh, some studies have been done uh, at Carnegie Mellon by Marcel Just and um, Patricia Carpenter uh, a number of years ago, but the studies still hold. If you look at what the eyes are doing and what the brain is doing when you are speed reading, well, it's the same thing you do when you scan, not surprisingly, because you need to move along, thank you. What happens when you scan is you take in some things, of course, but what you don't do is pause. What, what troubles me is that people aren't stopping and thinking, what does that word mean? What does this phrase do to me? It's that lack of stopping and thinking while we read that troubles me. So speed reading is a way not to stop and think, but so is reading on screens. I used to joke to myself that when I first got an IBM Selectric typewriter, okay, that I, you know, that would, that had this hum that went with my typing, that I typed faster. And generally speaking, two people do write more words when they're using a typewriter or write more words when they're working on so-called word processor or Microsoft Word or whatever it is than writing by hand. 
But one of the things that happens when you write by hand is you often stop and think. You have to form each of those letters. And it's a different kind of a mental process. To the extent we say faster is better, what we're saying is the quality of your thinking may not matter as much. You may end up doing as well on what I've come to call SAT verbal test exams. Read a passage and answer the questions. But that's different from contemplating. That's different than reflecting. And those are the things I fear we could lose. So um, a last practical question. Do you uh, allow your students to use laptops and other devices in your classes? Uh, No, (laughs) but I am not alone. So what I say to my students is this. If you were teaching this class and you wanted to engage people in discussion, would you allow them to use laptops? And they say, no. Uh, In a course where every semester I go in and give a guest lecture, I like to describe it as the Apple Store because it is lined up with, if there are 28 students or at least 25 laptops opened up. And I ask them the question. I say, if we're going to talk with each other, if that's the purpose of the class, not to look up information, but to talk with each other, would you let your students? And they they have their computers in front of them. And they say, no. And I say, why? (laughs) Well, because we don't focus. We don't concentrate. Mm. We're not part of the discussion. So they get it. We are trying to be helpful and say, new technologies, we should all have technologies throughout all of our classrooms. It's not clear they all want it. If we have a use for the technologies, absolutely. I'm not anti-technology. I use computers and and mobile phones all day long. But form has to follow function. We have to figure out what are we trying to do with the device and what negative consequences that we didn't think about might be creeping in through the back door. We've been talking with Naomi Barron. You can find her book, Words on Screen, in stores right now. Naomi, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's been great. Thank you so much. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews editor Annie Carino tells us about the best audiobooks of 2014. Stay tuned. This is Greer McAllister, author of The Magician's Lie, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW Reviews editor Annie Carino is here to tell us all about this year's Listen Up Awards. Hello, Annie. Hello. So, um, tell us first what the Listen Up Awards are. And when do they happen? The Listen Up Awards are our audio book awards. It's like the best of the year. We pick the best audio book of the year in six categories. Um, And those are fiction, nonfiction, read by the author, children's YA, classics, and audio book narrator of the year. Hmm. So... Um, and these are all from the books we review. We review mm-hmm. around 300 audiobooks a year. So. Wow, I didn't realize it was that many. Mm-hmm. 20 to 30 a month, and they always run in the last issue of the month. So. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So um, how how do audiobook reviews differ from our regular reviews? Are they more about the style and less about the content? It's a good question. Well, when I'm editing the reviews, I think, and I tell my reviewers to write the review as if you were a reader trying to decide if you want to listen to this book or read this book. So you have to know about the format and why you want to read it, specifically an audiobook format. Mm-hmm. And if you 
already are an audiobook reader, why you want to read that particular title. So it's mainly the performance and what dif makes it differ from the regular print version, but... Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got the listening component and how the, how the uh, narrator sounds, and, and I'm sure it gets tricky sometimes if you have the author who's reading his or her own book uh, versus someone who's well-known, uh, like an actor, so you I'm sure take all that into account too. Yep, and then you've got like sound bites that mm. you know kind of will spice up the listening experience, or your background music and guest narrators. There's a lot of different stuff they're doing, and you know the uh, marketplace for audiobooks continues to grow each year. So really? The um, publishers are doing more and more of their books in audio. That's interesting. So. I know a lot of people who listen to short fiction on podcasts, so it's not surprising to me that longer fiction works well uh, in the audio format, too. Do you get a lot of full-cast audiobooks? We do, and, you know, we used to have a category for that as its own in the Listen Up Awards, but it's becoming so much more common that uh, I think it's, it makes sense to treat it as a they're doing it with more books and not just, like, the classics mm. or, right. you know... Not just the special few. Yeah, exactly. So okay. we decided to keep it in the mix. So that makes a lot of sense. So um, tell us about this year's winners, and, or I guess the, the winners from books that came out in 2014. So for fiction, and you can go online to see the runners-up. So there's a lot of good ones in there that we mentioned, but I'll only be talking about the winners this year. Okay, great. Um, so in fiction, The Farm by Tom Rob Smith read by James Langton and Suzanne Torin. It's a Hachette audio book. It's a psychological thriller. It kind of takes, it's set sort of as a frame between two, uh, a conversation between a mother and a son, and the son's trying to figure out if the mother's telling the truth or if she's crazy. She's just escaped from an asylum, but she claims that the father trapped her there. Mm. This was two narrators, as you said. Yeah, right. So there was a lot of room, we called, uh, for the narrators to make this their own. You know, it wasn't a, a straightforward reading. There's actors, and they were able to transform it into, a, we called it a two-character theatrical. Hmm. So, Is that unusual in the audiobooks? So this is a little bit different? Yeah, well, there, you know, there's a, a bunch of different ways you can approach it mm -hmm. as a narrator. Some of them, like, change, for dialogue, will change... Um, their voices or add accents right. and that sort of thing. But when you have a story that fits so well into having a double narrator's reading, there's room for the actors to really put their interpretation in and oh. still let the author's prose shine through. Right. right, right. That makes a lot of sense. And so did, is that something that would have been considered full cast in the past? I, I feel like it's sort of in this halfway category between the full cast and the single narrator. Exactly. I, I'm not actually sure since it's my first year doing this but i think that's why we made the decision to put the full cast in with the rest of them because right. again they're doing more different things so it just makes sense to do them all together by genre so it makes a lot of sense so um what's up in nonfiction? what was the best of the year my personal favorite was um and this is nonfiction, but it's in read by the author because as mm -hmm. mark was saying you know, there are different considerations when it's not a professional right. narrator doing it. But um, uh, Elizabeth Warren, hmm. A Fighting Chance, which was her memoir, 
Um, we described it as her reading had the poise of a Harvard-trained attorney with the humble frankness of her working-class roots. So she wasn't afraid to raise her voice and be stern when it came to things that were important to her. Right. Yeah, that sounds like Elizabeth Warren. I'm amazed she found the time to record it. Does, doesn't it take a long time? I don't listen to a lot of audiobooks, as you can tell, so I'm all full of questions, but I think of them as being like 20 hours long. Yes, uh, some of them are 20 hours long. I think hers was around eight hours, but oh, yeah, okay. she did... Re- uh, she did record the whole thing, like Hillary's memoir, which Hillary did parts of it, but she didn't do the whole thing. So mm. that was right. And also this one was uh, the Elizabeth Warren audiobooks was nominated for a Grammy for its spoken word album. Oh, so. really? Mm-hmm. Wow. But oh, it, went to, it went to Joan Rivers. Hmm. So. Oh, okay. But, uh, so what? Sure, the nostalgia. Yeah. Vote. But um, I didn't even know the audiobooks were eligible for Grammys. Spoken word album. That's um, fascinating. Yeah, I was just talking to our colleague Seth about this today. He said Obama had won for his memoir a few years ago because oh. I hadn't heard about mm. it until this year too. So that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So what else do you have in nonfiction? What's the next category? Then we have general nonfiction, okay. uh, which is traditionally read by audiobook narrators. Uh, so we have one of the. Big names, narrators, won again this year. His name's John Lee. He's a veteran. And he won for his reading of Ben McIntyre's book, A Spy Among Friends, which tells the story of Kim Philby, who was a spy in the Cold War, a Mm. double spy. Mm. So what we liked about this one, there were a lot of different characters from Mm -hmm. different countries, and he was really able to shine with his accents. um, And then... His delivery of the spy versus spy banter evokes the essence of the Cold War tension. Oh, great. Yeah, that's a really good one. And people who are fans of audiobooks will definitely recognize his name. And so how many awards are there in nonfiction? Just those two? Mm Mm-hmm. And then so what do we have in fiction? Fiction we have that was a farm. But for YA uh, and children's, we have one called... Revolution by Deborah Wiles, and it's read by multiple narrators. It's the second in the author's 60s series. Mm -hmm. It's for middle grade, um, so that's ages 8 through 12, and it takes place during the Freedom Summer. And what we really liked about this one was that chapters were interwoven with recreated sound bites of the reports and speeches to make them sound like primary sources, and so so they had a lot of fun with that extra flourishes of the audio format with this one. It's amazing how much work goes into this. I mean, I I know how hard our wonderful sound engineer works on making our show sound good. And, you know, we're only sitting in this room for an hour and a half or so every week. But um, for putting together a a full-length audio book, it just must be really a, a huge crew of people working behind the scenes. For sure. And some of them are just live recordings of traditional plays or there's such a range right. and variety in audiobooks right now and it's becoming more competitive so you're going to mm. see a lot more of these extra sound bites or flourishes and right. you know they really help engage people so i think it's a great opportunity to have kids you know pick up a book read alongside or just right. listen Cool. And what are the last categories? Um, classics. 
So these are ones that weren't necessarily, well, the audiobooks were published this year, but the right. traditional books weren't. And The Hound of Baskerville is the winner this year, and it's by uh, L.A. Theatre Works, which is this great publisher that does the um, live recordings. Oh, mm. right. And we, sa- we said about this one that there's been, the story has been, there's been numerous film, radio, and television adaptations, but rarely has one been as flat-out entertaining as this radio-like full-cast performance. Great. So it's it's basically just a recording of a stage show? Mm-hmm. And the live audience helps. I was going to say, yeah. is there a live audience? Mm-hmm. Because that would make such a difference. Uh, it, I used to listen to selected shorts I on selected. NPR, right. yeah, yeah. and uh, it was one, one of my formative radio experiences. Uh, but hearing the audience react always helped me feel like I was just right there. Yeah, and that it's a different experience too. You know, you know when to laugh. Or mm-hmm. right. And what was the last category? Audiobook narrator of the year. So, and that went to uh, Robin Miles. Mm-hmm. We profiled her in earlier this year. Um, in in the studio and she had multiple titles we named um, she was one of the actors in Revolution which was the uh, YA children's winner Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then she had a great performance for an an untamed state by Roxane Gay so and those were just two of the many titles that she came out with last year she had multiples but those were the ones that we really liked that we reviewed so very cool. Great. So I saw. I just got a press release saying that uh, the Audi review or the Audi Awards um, shortlist has just come out. Is there a lot of overlap, or did you uh, have you gotten a chance to take a look at it yet? Mm-hmm. There is definitely overlap, as there has been in past years. But um, a Fighting Chance was on there, I believe. A Spy Among Friends was nominated in the general fiction category. And then, you know, you see a lot of the, di- the names of the narrators coming through. So it's interesting. Now it's my first year doing this. I'm starting to get to know the names of right. the narrators. And some of my uh, reviewers have been filling me in a lot and right, right. helping me ca- get up to speed. But now I'm starting to see, like, the interactions online between the narrators, too. And there's, like, this whole community. They're all buddy-buddy. And he, I saw one was tweeting yesterday. He was saying, like, I was surprised I got n- nominated for this one, you know, wh- whereas I thought <laughs> this one f- would for sure. Because they do like, these actors will do 10, 15 mm. books a year. Mm-hmm. Wow. So well, that's very fun. cool. Well, we'll keep an eye out for the Audi Awards and uh, see how well we, we managed to match up with them or whether we went our own iconoclastic way as we tend to do with our <laughs> year's best list. This is yep. true. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Annie, and for filling us in on that. And uh, those of our listeners who are into audiobooks can find the whole list on our website, right? Including the the runners-up? Runners-up, yep. Definitely check that out because there's some good ones there, too. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hello, this is Gay Talese. I'm the author of The Bridge, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
Join us next week for another wonderful author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 